What is going on guys, Naeem Alobeda here. I am super excited to announce the launch of our new series, Blockchain Today. This is our first episode. And before we start, I want you to all know we're going to be distributing this show on iTunes podcast, on IGTV, Twitter, Facebook, and pretty much every single platform. So feel free to listen in every single week as we interview the top crypto executives, influencers, and founders in this sphere. So let's go ahead and dive into our first episode. I hope you guys enjoy this new series of blockchain today exclusively here on snipers tube welcome to our first episode of blockchain today and this is one of our new series here where we're going to feature executives influencers and founders in the cryptocurrency sphere to really dive deep and understand where their mindset is and really what's happening in the sphere because I feel like so many people are blind in this sphere. And today we have Timothy Lewis to kick it off hey. our first episode of Blockchain Super today. Super excited. To love, to, love to be out in the blogosphere. Good to have you. Uh, good to be here. Now, 100%. Be here. And if you guys don't today. know, absolutely. If you guys don't know about Timothy, man, this guy's got a ton of stuff under his belt. He's been in the computer science and technology field for decades at this point he's actually a partner at dna fund which is one of the largest venture funds in the cryptocurrency sphere also a founding partner at ikigai which is another hedge fund that you're working with and there's just so many things that you're doing you're advising like 12 companies and you're doing so much in the sphere and really the point of this interview in my opinion is to really dive into your mind and get your understanding of the blockchain revolution the cryptocurrency revolution and what's happening right now and what you foresee in the next five to ten years because i think that's extremely important when investing in projects wouldn't you agree i absolutely agree but i would take a step back and start talking more about the crypto asset revolution not just cryptocurrency and i would move beyond the blockchain and start talking about all the different byzantine fault tolerant protocols that will be coming. Um, Could you explain what that Byzantine fault, fault protocol is? Yes, Byzantine fault tolerance. <laughs> I mean, really, what uh, cryptocurrencies have been around since the 90s. Um, that I, I'm a part of the cypherpunk scene, cypherpunk movement. I've been so for the last, you know, Jesus, 25 years now. And wow. um, so we had different ways of creating cryptocurrencies, but we didn't have these Byzantine fault tolerant distributed ledger technologies. So it was really the uh, Bitcoin when it was launched, there was Big B Bitcoin and Little B Bitcoin. Now, uh, Big B Bitcoin is uh, referred to as blockchain. Uh, but ultimately, what the technology provided was a way to solve an age-old problem that was referred to as the Byzantine Generals problem. Um, so it's, it's a long explanation, but ultimately it means being able to coordinate around a large network without an intermediary. Mm -hmm. And in, in, the, in this subject, it was about attacking a castle. Right. So ultimately, providing Byzantine fault tolerance means that you can come to a consensus agreement without an intermediary amongst a network. And the Byzantine fault protocol is a simple way of saying a blockchain. Well, a blockchain is a Byzantine fault tolerant protocol. Okay. Not all Byzantine fault tolerant protocols will be blockchains. That's why you have the existence now of things like DAGs with the Hashgraph protocol. And there are several others that will come out. I mean, this is a science that's now only nine years old uh, so we will continue to develop different things that achieve byzantine fault tolerance 100 percent. just so people can get a background of like where you come from in terms of you know your experience in life your yep. career your jobs that you've had i mean what is your story sure, Timothy? like sure. what, what have you been through what have you experienced 
I, I am a I am a zennial. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I love the millennials. Generation X was the analogs. Generation, uh, the millennial generation are the digital kids. I was born in, in an in-between segment. I won't give the exact year, so not to give my age away. But, you know, growing up that like that, the first time I started working with the communication networks, I was working on 1,200 bowed modems where you were actually doing tip to ring uh, taking oh. a phone and putting it on a, a modem that would actually use the phone for that uh, to be able to communicate. It was really, really slow, uh, but it was amazing. And as a child, three, four, five years old, as I'm working on these connections, I, I found an escape. I lived uh, in Ohio and didn't have, you know, didn't have the ability to go out to, to as many libraries. And I found getting to information. BBSs at the time were the thing. So these bulletin board systems. Uh, so uh, at age seven, I created my first BBS. What are BBSs? Bulletin board system uh, was like a precursor to uh, the internet, right? So mm -hmm. the idea that you could communicate, you could dial in to a, uh, you could dial into a service, and in that service, you would have uh, a terminal service that you could actually retrieve files or view messages, right? So this was this predated AOL and CompuServe. Wow, so it was right. almost like LAN with Xbox where you would play with somebody within your vicinity. So it was a so, no, transfer of it, information. It, it, LAN was a later technology. You know, when wow. I was developing uh, local area networks, LAN networks, uh, was a later technology. This, uh, it was there in the 80s, but uh, more so used commercially. This was literally taking, being able to dial out to somebody else's server, somebody's box. You were dialing in from, from your modem to a pool of modems, to a modem pool that that would pick up and that, uh, that that person would have stored information. It's very much like you dial in now or you actually uh, get to information now via IP, IPv4, whatever they are, you'd still have your network. You probably wouldn't have a network actually, most of these things. You would just dial into these, uh, these services uh, and ultimately being on those services, uh, you could retrieve information. So this uh, it's seven, eight, I'm, I'm messing, I'm, I'm working wow. on creating these these information repos, right? So most people at seven or eight year old, years old, I mean, they're still with their parents, and they don't really have any self awareness. They're not really venturing out, doing their own things. I mean, it's, I, it's impressive. I was, I was I was lucky. My father was very uh, happy to encourage my exploration of computers. So he he spent a lot of money, and it allowed me to spend a lot of time on my computers because I showed a lot of interest in that. And I think it's a, it was an important thing for him to be able to encourage me to do that. Um, but Having access to information like that, I would di I was dialing in places. You know, you first you start locally, and you've got your local dials, but then they're not exciting. Then you find out I was in Ohio, so I started <laughs> dialing out to California. And at the time, long distance calls were expensive. You used to have these intralateral interstate charges, and the first time you get busted by your parents for a five or six hundred dollar phone bill, you know that would that that's a pretty serious reprimand. Uh, at the time, <laughs> and uh, my parents didn't understand what I was doing, but I didn't want to stop. So in order to not stop, um, I started really exploring what hacking was. And at seven, eight, nine years old, you start to learn about um, the, the other networks that you can attach to and the other communication systems that you can use to your advantage just so I can get more information. For me, it was always about getting applications, getting, uh, getting books, uh, getting information so I could educate more educate myself with newer 
and material, new information. And so, so learning how to, to create uh, or find modem relays became like the big thing. So, you, so really early on, you were into technology, you were into computers. What about if we fast forward to like 17, 18, 19, 20 years old, when sure. you start becoming more self-aware yep. of yourself and who you are? Well, I started, what, yeah, I started, to, I, I built an ISP when I was 13 or 14, wow. right? So you, you kind of just moved on and, and the networks were getting built by then. You know, this is in the early 90s. This is in like 92, 93. And um, I started really getting fascinated with carrier grade equipment and understanding how uh, internet service provi providers worked and the networks worked. So at the time you were learning about routing protocols and you were learning about, um, about security, you'd have communications over, you know, you went from BBS to news groups to, uh, to IRC. Uh, and you would you would start communicating at these larger networks. And what I started creating a, a, a niche for myself in was um, routing, data expediency, and security. Mm -hmm. So understanding how to create uh, secure communications uh, for businesses and for some government agencies. So working on different things for uh, communication protocols is where I, is what I really focused on and data expediency from like 1993 or 1994 really through 2001 or 2002 uh, so and I actually had a, uh, a in 1996 I, d I decided that I was going to you know chopped full of technology and understanding uh, I was gonna go to New York I got my series 7 I was a stockbroker so uh, how old at 18. 18 years old. Isn't that seven. like the start in That's, which you can get it? I, I, I don't know if there's legal presence. <laughs> I don't know if there's legal presence for you being able to get it under, under 18. But uh, I got it when I was you know, probably 18 and a half, so like six months into my 18th birthday. Wow. Uh, but you know, I was working. I had been fascinated by stocks and I'm fascinated by finance. You know, so, so reading books um, you know, from the age of 12, 13 on about finance, about uh, currencies, about how they worked, and then about stocks and technical trading at the time was brand new, um, mm. 1994, 1995, 1996. So I was super into understanding what those systems looked like. Uh, and then went out to New York and spent a couple of years as a broker, uh, which was a lot of fun, mm -hmm. but at the same time, it was not um, fulfilling. So uh, after I left, I had gone back and spent a, a little bit of time at a school called Ohio State, uh, which, was a, which was just a blast, but I wasn't getting anything done. And uh, <laughs> I, I moved from there to, to Chicago. And in Chicago, I started to work for some banks. Uh, so I started working on data expediency in 2002, 2003, started becoming super important. So you've always been in data, you've always been in security, you've been in the computer technology industry. And you're really understanding of it because you've been in, in it since its inception. So let's fast forward now into you know today with crypto assets yep. and blockchain yep. and you know where we're headed in regards to this consensus model and the ability to really eliminate these intermediaries and what that really means in a globalized economy. You yep. know because right now we're very closed off between borders. Yep. So what do you envision the future sure. of blockchain and crypto? you know, based upon your past and the experiences you've had. So really, a, a lot of my heroes and a lot of the people that have been fighting for this, uh, it's about the freedom of information. And there were different times uh, during this path that uh, information freedom fighters have stood up and, and really kind of created the path for uh, the potential of this, uh, of this new cryptographic law that we might enter into. Um, you know, the Electronic Frontier Foundation uh, and, and the work that they've done along the way. Uh, there was a, a time, there was an attack in, in Egypt, I remember, that uh, we, were, we were posting up uh, modems, dial-out modems, 
uh, dial-in modems that people in, in, in Egypt could, could use because ultimately they were getting their own internet service provider shut down. Right. Wow. So, so looking at, for me, it's always been about the freedom of information, you know, so every time the world creates a better way to distribute information, some power that be comes in and stops that, whether it be the Gutenberg press, the AM radio, the FM radio, the TV, whatever that we've done, there has been a centralized power that's come in and taken control. And the idea of the internet when it started was that it was going to be a decentralized network where anyone and everyone could contribute uh, freely and equally. Uh, and as we know, that has been manipulated. That's not the, the current case. Uh, we didn't necessarily build it with the, the, the under basings of security um, like we wish we may have had, but ultimately that the technologies weren't at a level uh, that we could effectively do that at that point. And that goes back to the Byzantine protocols. Well, we didn't have a solution yet, mm -hmm. right, to Byzantine fault tolerance uh, or Byzantine generals problem. Uh, but also ultimately, you know, we were creating, every time you create uh, you know, you also use cryptography in uh, creating private networks, virtual private networks. You use them in communications and a bunch of other uh, methods uh, across the the internet. Um, and uh, you were, you, you know, that took a lot of processing power to be able to to, to hold those, create those uh, tunnels, and and uh, that wasn't very efficient. So at the time when building out this network, the idea was, well, let's work on efficiency. We'll worry about security later. Right, and uh -huh. so that's really what everyone did, and, um, and now we have this amazing network up, which attaches to billions of devices on the planet, and will be soon trillions. And so, you know, we still don't have that completely solved. And everyone, said, when you talk about blockchain being or or, or uh, BFT DLTs being a new industry, it's really not. It's just a technology that's on top of the existing technologies. Right, so understanding the networks first and understanding uh, how that architecture works is important. Uh, and then adding on top of that, some of the solutions that these immutable and censorable ledgers uh, can provide is what gets interesting. Um, so you know, we're really at the beginning of that phase now and, and being able to, uh, to, to, uh, to create new law is what ultimately I think the, the direction is. Right? And you're saying we, we're in that stage right now, which I think is important for people that are investing. Obviously, this isn't financial advice, but you're talking about infrastructure right now. And is, in your opinion, is that the, the type of project? Because you're running funds, so you're obviously looking at projects. Yep. I'm sure you vet out yep. hundreds of projects. Yep. And in regards to what projects to look at right yeah. now that might be here five or ten years from now, sure. what type of projects would you categorize in that manner? Yeah, um, so it's it's tough. I mean, definitely the, the protocol layer right now is is of, of main focus, right? And, and, and the, the last couple of years, the protocol has been uh, the the one that's been most rewarded. Uh, I don't necessarily think that we'll ever live in a in a time where protocol is uh, consistently the place that captures the value. Um, so it's important now, but most things aren't being used right now. You can't use Ethereum right now. Ethereum, you know, I'm sorry, it's been it was a great experience. It's been a great experiment, and I, it's an amazing platform and project. But when you look at the actual use cases and the users of that system now, uh, the most used DAP on the Ethereum platform it has roughly 4,500 to 5,000 users IDEX on it a day. And the 100th most used product ha, project has about three. 
So it's uh, just not so being used. It's just not being used. Like, so, so we need to be able to create more user-friendly ways, obviously, of people being able to, to join these networks. And you're um, a founding partner at Ikigai, which... Yes. First and foremost, what does Ikigai stand for? <laughs> Ikigai is uh, similar to a reason for being in French. And, and what it is, is it's the center of uh, what you love to do, what you're good at, what the world needs, and what you get paid for. So wow. this finding your Ikigai is that center. So we have a, a great group um, founded this with Travis Kling, Travis formerly of Point72. He's a, uh, a decade-long uh, traditional long-short asset manager at one of the top hedge funds in the world. Um, Travis is absolutely brilliant. He worked under Steve Cohen. And um, you know, he, wow. he really got dove deep into, into the crypto asset world about, uh, about two years ago. Couldn't do his job at one of the largest hedge funds in the world. Told them, hey guys, I've got to stop this. I'm, I'm working on crypto. I uh, explored that for a bit with them, and uh, they, are, they are a big now publicly funded um, uh, hedge fund again, and they weren't ready to step into it because, as we know, regulations aren't completely certain for a lot of these things. Uh, so he wanted to leave, and, and at that time, he and I have been friends for about seven years. Uh, we decided that we were going to push forward and, and move towards that. And I also operate as a partner on DNA Fund, and DNA Fund is a venture fund. Um, there's slightly different theories around the things that we're working on. Uh, whereas DNA goes after some of the largest, most interesting projects in the world, helps them get funding uh, like Hashgraph, like Satori, um, like EOS. Uh, then, then Ikigai is more along the side of uh, protocol thesis and algorithmic trading and you know, finding alpha on, on these existing uh, assets that are in the markets with a small emphasis on, on venture. And venture is the side that I run because venture is what I love. I mean, I'm, I'm, an, I'm a developer, I've been a developer my whole life. You know, this is the type of thing that I, that I love finding these new products that hopefully will change the world. And you mentioned half, Hashgraph, you mentioned Satori, yep. as well as EOS. EOS and Hashgraph being infrastructure projects. Yep. And then Satori is a project being built on Hashgraph, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. So Correct. what interests you about those three projects? You know, could you talk a little bit about what your vision is for these three projects? Sure, sure, yeah. I mean, EOS is absolutely brilliant. I, I, I love Dan Larimer. I think he, uh, just where he's aligned ethically, he's a volunteerist, and that speaks a lot to me. Uh, and he's just a, he's a proven a developer. I mean, he, he's he, this is now his fourth attempt at a at a blockchain. Uh, his all previous being very successful, uh, and and that being BitShares one, uh, Steemit uh, one of the best use cases. Of one blockchain. of the most used, the most used blockchain in the world right now. He actually has two of the the top two blockchains are both his. Um, so uh, then the, the rehash of BitShares that he did, and now, uh, and now EOS. So EOS for me is a great experiment. Um, one of the more interesting parts about the EOS network is the fact that there is a constitution. Uh, so you're actually entering agreements. Going back to what you were talking earlier about breaking down borders, breaking down law, um, these constitutions, these net states that will create the importance of what we are agreeing to by being on this network may one day become the new law for these communities. Right? Mm. So when we look at the, the there's, there's, a, there's a term I like to go back to and it's the lexicons of trade and there's a lex cryptographia. So mm. there is a very interesting term. If anyone out there wants to go down the rabbit hole, go look up the term lex cryptographia and read about what this change, the lexicons of, of merchant trade 
uh, where we will be if we enter into this. Can you give me a quick summary? A quick summary. Well, it's, it talks about the, the, the prior changes. You know, every time you have a radical change in trade, uh, you have a radical change in law. So looking back to the merchant times of the 1300s where we started trading with paper and what that meant. So think about this in the 1300s. Prior to being able to have a bank where you had a piece of paper that could represent 500 pounds of gold, if you needed to go trade uh, for, uh, let's just say, uh, spices and, 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 uh, and ink, uh, to, to, and you had to travel, you would have to bring your 500 pounds of gold with you, with your hordes of people, and those hordes of people, you know, entering into any different land would definitely be recognized. You'd probably be getting taxed on the way in. Wow. You'd be getting attacked on the way the whole time. You'd get to your place, you would have started with 500 pounds of gold, and now you're probably down to 400 or 350. You had to employ 50, 60, 80, 100, 500 people to go bring this with you, right? Uh, when, the, when, the, when the idea of paper came through for, uh, with this intermediary, similar to like the banking service, the merchant services, uh, came about, you could get away with taking that piece of paper, uh, crossing through borders with one other probably person to protect you, and getting to your place of trade. Now, when you showed up, the first couple guys that showed up and said, hey, listen, uh, Sultan, this piece of paper here is worth 500 pounds of gold, they probably <laughs> looked at you and said, you are crazy. This is the, the same way that we do now in the crypto space. Like, oh, this fake internet money, the magic <laughs> internet money, you guys are crazy, right? But it's the same type of principle to me. It, was a, it, was a, it, was a, it changed the law because ultimately you were able to go in and out of borders in a much easier way. So over a hundred year period where it, you know, things took longer than to really, to really change, um, the, the people that were uh, aware of being able to trade like this uh, were much more profitable in their trades. Wow. So there were different and there have been different lexicons that have come through. And the last one we just experienced was the Lex Informatica, the information uh, lexicons. And now we're entering into uh, the cryptographic lexicon. And then you mentioned regulations earlier, and I think that applies to what you're talking about now, where regulations are uncertain. However, in you know what you're saying right now, there really should be new regulations put in place right now because apparently the current regulations just aren't feasible for what we're currently experiencing with this revolution. So you're expecting this new lexicon of transition of regulations to occur now with this new cryptographic revolution, is that correct? It will happen over time. Those type of things aren't... Um, aren't Where do you see it headed? Um, you know, I think that I'm hoping that this will break down borders. You know, I'm hoping that this, you know, the, the better communication systems that we have and the more that we can trust the consensus records of people, the more that we can recognize that cross-border we're the same. We are. Um, we are an amazing you know, people. We are all human, and, and yeah, we are. We are. We are. We are all meant to be together and not separated through um, through these fake borders that people are putting up. So uh, you know, I'm hoping that uh, that's some of the change that happens. I think it'll happen in other you know in smaller countries. I think that as people start to trade uh, and are able to trade without intermediaries and without interference, um, people will be communicating more and start to recognize that. Um, most people in life are after the same 
things, and it's just you know freedom, happiness, and and, and love of family. Uh, and so ultimately, you know, I think that these systems can can uh, can help in the advancement of mankind. And I think it's a pretty radical explanation too, because dropping borders would then also imply that stock markets would crash. I wouldn't necessarily imply economic. that they would crash. You know, there, there, there's definitely an economic change that will occur, right? So if we, it, right now, the U.S. dollar underpins a lot of the world economy, and there are methods that are being taken now to change its use uh, with, uh, say, OPEC trade and uh, the different oil Gas trades. And, oil. and if that happens, you know, that's going to cause a lot of instability in the U.S. dollar. Now, every, uh, every, um, you know. Uh, Every major nation state throughout mankind in history has always come, risen, and eventually there's a fall. And I'm, you know, a citizen of the United States, and I'm proud of our country for some reasons, and I've been proud of our history. But, you know, I think that the founding fathers of this country did so to flee from a central bank and did so to flee from religious overtones. Um, so, you know, in that spirit of freedom, I think we are still fighting. Uh, so we're still hoping to try to find this resolution for all mankind. Uh, that, and so I think that you know, for my, me personally, I think this technology can usher in a lot of that change. And talk about resolutions. So we were talking about Ethereum earlier and then we tapped into EOS. And I don't think, you know, I, I might be mistaken, but are you, aren't you the fifth largest block producer right now? We are the fifth largest block producer <laughs> on the EOS network. If you have EOS uh, tokens, vote for us. Liberty Block. Uh, we are we stand for life, liberty, and the pursuit of freedom. Um, so this is uh, this is. I've been mining since two thousand and nine. You know, I've been involved in. Uh, again, this is my my background. Working for banks, working for uh, technology companies to create uh, you know secure infrastructure, and uh, you know that it's it's an obvious. It's it's been a great. Part of my career, I've now gotten to be CTO of a publicly traded mining company. I've, I've, I've built many, many data centers. I've done, I've done a lot in that space. And uh, block production and being a delegated block producer is an honor because in the EO system, it's done by uh, by voting, by public voting. And ultimately, you know, the the hope and the goal is that the people that align best to the uh, the voters and the users of the network uh, will. Put in place the ones that uh, they believe are going to best carry out that mission. Uh, so we're excited to be number five now, uh, and uh, you know, hopefully with some more votes, we can we can move up. And, and I was talking to a friend of mine who's working on a coin right now, and they were trying to incorporate EOS into it. And verbatim, what they told me was EOS is a whole different ballgame to Ethereum. It's a whole different system. It's a whole different. I mean, th this consensus model. And this block producing model, it's not present right now with Ethereum. So in regards yeah. to comparisons of Ethereum and EOS, you know, we've heard of some issues with EOS recently, and I definitely want to bring that up to see your opinion sure. on that. But of course, any new technology, anything new is going to have issues, and that's just something that has to be yeah. ironed out over time. Yeah. But what is your opinion on the comparison of Ethereum and EOS, and how do you think that EOS is going to affect Ethereum because Ethereum is number two right now, and is that going to stay number two? Sure. Uh, again, I love the Ethereum network, um, the, the, the onslaught, what became now the semi-turning complete block production networks, uh, you know, really kind of gained public 
awareness with Ethereum. And so that was fantastic. And the last couple of years have been about what does that mean? How do you do them uh, in, in launching uh, launching tokens. I mean, really, the, the the production side of Ethereum that's worked has been creating ICOs. Um, but it's time for us as a, as a community, I think, to move beyond just creating ICOs. Uh, and, and that's going to be to actually have usable uh, usable networks with reputation systems, with identity systems, uh, and uh, that, that will be interesting and usable by a general public, hopefully. Um, so EOS is, uh, the, the, in the difference between block production, you know, Ethereum, anyone with any GPU miner all the way across the world can, uh, can mine, for, mine for Ethereum. And that's a, that's a great thing. Uh, I've been mining Ethereum since the first network that was, that was brought up prior, previous to the actual production network. Now, Ethereum, you talk about troubles, like Ethereum wasn't, wasn't uh, <laughs> That's it, didn't, it wasn't column C's, and, and, and column C's never has a, a great sale or made. I think within the first year, I mean, first three months, Ethereum Classic was born from a fork there was immediately a, a after. Isn't Ethereum Classic the I, I original did, blockchain? It, it, it is, it is, yeah. And that was done very contentiously, and that was done uh, by a, a closed off group of, of, of three to five. It must be very controversial. It absolutely was controversial. Um, so we have a constitution, it's a governed blockchain, and people need to understand what that means. Could that happen to EOS? So again, we have a governed blockchain. We can create a consensus amongst uh, amongst the the users. Now, there was one thing that had happened prior um, to the uh, ECAF being set up, and that was the idea that there were a number of accounts that were obviously fished, that were obviously stolen, uh, that the people who owned the original wallets, the Ethereum wallets that had paid for the EOS, um, had been attacked. That they'd, they'd fallen for someone's phishing scam, and that. The, the person who was in charge of the phishing scam uh, was attempting to recover their EOS so they would not have them. Um, so some of the block producers, you know, in, in its normal way of folding out, uh, decided to, to hold their hands up and say, hey, listen, if we go live immediately with uh, these issues, those tokens will be lost forever. Um, you know, it's controversial in the fact that, you know, is it, Buyer beware! Is it is it the fact that you've lost your own tokens and, and you know and some of these smaller ones I, I, I would agree with that and these probably didn't need to go through it immediately as it did but it was a good example of what a government blockchain could do because they were able to put pause on these accounts and then now we have a resolution forum the ECAF uh, that is a, a elected position that people can uh, go back and see so because you know if you do get wrongfully you know ha have your account stolen have your uh, your token stolen being able you know from a business perspective or being able from an individual perspective to make sure that you, you have some sort of protection i think is a good thing you know so it's not uh, code is not law uh code always changes and um you know in ethereum's case when that changed you had a contentious hard fork and in the case of eos uh, you had a a, a, uh, a forum that was uh, discussed about how this should should be or should not be, and parts of the accounts were frozen during the, that discussion. So I think it's an evolution in, in the way that things will be managed. And communication is always key, so it's almost like another form of communication. I know a lot of people are excited about the airdrops with EOS and. People are just ecstatic because yeah. you're getting coins yeah. for just holding the EOS token. Yeah. That's not something that is happening right now with Ethereum and yep. you know what is your opinion oh my god okay I love I'm glad you brought this up <laughs> man because I, I love airdrops and, and really what Liberty Block is doing as far as an, I guess I'll 
announced this year first. I'm going to be doing a much bigger pro uh, uh, broadcast for it later, but I've got a, a document coming out in the next uh, day or two about the airdrop scene, mm -hmm. pure airdrop scene, which is one I like more. We apparently have to use stop using the word airdrop. Apparently, uh, the SEC is hot and heavy for the word airdrop. Um, because uh, the, you might be giving away a security on these things. So there, I, I'm very close with some of the teams that have been working on these. And if you've taken funding prior to dropping these out uh, with no, with no res, uh, registration, uh, that is similar to just giving away securities and the SEC frowns upon that. This is again one of those things in regulation that um, never has happened before. And so we need to figure things out. But for now, the way it is stated, at least in the United States, is that you, they might have problems with it. Um, so we're looking at different ways. We're probably going to call these things something else. Pure airdrops. Uh, well, pure airdrops, again, is the word that I have been using. But you've got to stay away from airdrops because airdrops is going to be uh, one of those just things that the, the SEC is going to tag. Whether or not it happens, who knows? Like if we were trying to get away from the word ICOs for a while, and, and that didn't uh, that didn't happen. Well. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, ultimately, you know, I, I love this idea, and I love this scene. And I, the, the way that I really like it is this one-to-one, -one, pure airdrop style, where a community creates value um, through uh, its belief in, in whatever the valuation is of a token. Community creating value. Can you elaborate? Yeah. So, in, in, let's just say I'm creating a new DAP, and uh, I, I don't want to go. Most of the ICO stuff was built to, to crush the backs of, of uh, vulture capitalists. You know, we weren't able, vulture capitalists. We weren't <laughs> able to, to, um, to kind of allow our entrepreneurs to, you know, get funding to be able to be creative. And then, you know, there was, a, there was this valley of despair in, in all entrepreneurs' lives where, you know, you, you might have a successful project, but you're not able to extract any value unless it might unicorn. People have these um, preferences on exits that really tie the entrepreneurs and, and and if you might even have a, a, a decently successful project but you know you might have all the value extracted by your VCs and when you when you're done slaving for these five to eight years of your life you walk with virtually nothing if anything and so and if you weren't a unicorn so it's not a very healthy thing to do for me if we're going to be creating moonshots and entrepreneurs are going to get a chance we have to have more of a participatory manner and also the ability for some value to be extracted not all the value i mean i think that we went the wrong way in ethereum at some points where mm -hmm. we had people going out and getting dumped three thirty to fifty to a hundred to two hundred million dollars tezos on them <laughs> and not having not having any real responsibility and uh, then they were probably spending too much time thinking about ways to make other money with their new ICO money than they were actually about building their project or platform. So that's a problem. And Tezos, all their funds were frozen, I believe, right? Yeah, we'll, we can get in a whole conversation with that <laughs> if you want. But you know, it's important about any network, especially these networks, is building your community. And so the idea now behind what these pure airdrops would be is is being able to create um, a and uh, on the EOS network. So being able to create a product, not having any charging any value for your token. Let's just say there's a billion users on. Let's say there's a billion EOS tokens on the EOS network uh, for for round numbers. Uh, so I'm creating a new DAP and I want people to use it. And I was going to then uh, airdrop uh, every user one to one based on the EOS tokens they had. I also have theories about not doing this to not giving those to the exchanges that are not going to certify that they're going to give them to their users. 
So remember that if your tokens are on an exchange, it's not guaranteed that you're going to get the airdrops that you're entitled to, but the, but the exchanges themselves will, they will. Right. So we're working with a bunch of exchanges right now, making sure that they are going to give those over because it's the intention of the developers to give them to the community, not to the exchanges. So make sure if you're holding your if you're holding your tokens on an exchange, make sure that it's one that's gonna make that you're gonna be able to get your tokens, uh, your airdrops. Um, so in this model, say I've I've given out a billion tokens, but I also made an additional billion tokens, right? So now in my to total DAP ecosystem, I, there's a total of two billion tokens. I have not raised a dollar. There's no there's no I've not claimed that these tokens have any value. Uh, I create then relationships with the exchanges and say, hey, listen, I've got X token and X token does Y and you should carry it on your exchange. And the exchange owner says, sounds good. Uh, we'll carry it on our exchange. Now, you're, the EOS users, uh, you in whatever product it is, you, you have your announcement, you talk to everybody about what this is. It's open to go, ready to play with. People can start using it. And uh, wow. so, so the, the idea would be that some people think, hey, your idea is great. Um, I want more of X tokens. And some people think to themselves, this is another crappy project. Uh, I'm not interested in this, I'll sell my X tokens. So then it would go in the exchange and people start to create a value for it, right? So if you can get more people to hold, the value might be potentially more. Now let's think about what happens if this token goes up to being worth um, a penny, right? On, on, on a penny, uh, you have $10 million now of value that you've created with your billion tokens. Wow. Uh, so if you need to go out and you need to hire new resources, uh, maybe you have enough volume to where you can then sell 500,000 you know, US dollars. If that's what you require or are required to operate your business, uh, right now, legally in America, you cannot pay people with cryptocurrencies. Um, so. If you're operating in America and you need to be, uh, if you need to pay people to uh, work on more services to create a better, more robust platform, you may need to extract some value. Uh, you may need to convert that into a fiat, maybe through an exchange, and then to pay your bills to make the project better. Now, let's say you did that, and all of a sudden you have a much better project product, and all of a sudden your tokens trade from a, a penny to being worth five cents a piece. Now you've sitting on effectively, however, it depends on how much you sold before, uh, effectively probably about $45 million worth of value, right? Wow, so you're so allowing you can, the community to create the value of the token. And that kind of makes me a little bit excited for the next couple of years. Yeah. Just because of the fact that we saw what happened in December and January, and that was an awesome time of ICOs, yeah. but now we're transitioning into this new, in this new field where it's going to be the communities creating values for these tokens. And I think Ontology was a pretty successful use case of an airdrop. I think Ontology did one on the Ethereum blockchain, but it allowed the community to create a value for its token by giving it away. You know, I had a friend of mine that was at a conference and he was rewarded ontology tokens at the conference because they were giving out the airdrops and that eventually turned into liquid uh you know liquid capital that yeah. was uh, able to be extracted so that is amazing and so to transition you mentioned hashgraph and satori and i know these are two projects that you are pretty passionate about and obviously you've vetted out hundreds and hundreds of projects for your your funds and mm -hmm. you know these two projects are projects that i know you're excited yeah. about could you talk about 
Hashgraph as well as Satori and sure. what that could turn into? Yeah, uh, I think I would say thousands and thousands uh, at this point of vetting, not hundreds and hundreds. Thousands. And uh, you know, we have a great team that goes through a lot of this stuff before it gets to, to, to us. Um, but ultimately, yeah, Hashgraph, EOS for me is a great uh, like public network and it will be a great public network for reputation and things like, you know, I, I expect to see a very usable network, including the ability to, to, to kind of transition beyond just this public key, private key uh, login infrastructure to where we have the use of the secure enclave chip. I feel um, like EOS, just as a side note, it's like Xbox Live or like, sure, it's I, almost like it's, its, it's own community. I love, yeah, it's, it's like a, its own Facebook. Yeah, it's I, turning into its own. Yeah, and it will be. These networks thing. are. That's what that is. And you're exactly right. Now, when we have better tools for identification on it, I have very much high hopes that my mom will be on the EOS network. Because she'll be able to not, you won't be just using your public key, private key. It'll be able to log that, track that one time, then use your biometrics to access your private key that's stored in your secure enclave on your phone uh, and being able to do that kind of easily. Um, so you're able to create things like reputation platforms. Everpedia is a great idea, is a great concept of where this is as a reputation platform. Um, so that those are the type of projects. Everpedia, some, some Yelp killer should be on the EOS platform. You know, some wow. of these of these type of um, maybe an open table type platform should be on um, on these. These are going to be reputation and social tools, right? So I think that you'll have you know there, there there's, there's going to be attempts at taking over Twitter. Uh, I know that Dan Larimer himself is working on a, a, a social network. I mean, that's what really I think the EOS community will be all about. Uh, but Hashgraph is different. Hashgraph is a permissioned network. Uh, it's not going to be radically public. Uh, that being said, the uh, players of the system are going to be known. And I think that a lot of the financial systems and services will feel comfortable riding on the Hashgraph public network. You know, when I talk about the, uh, the, the, the networks, uh, you look at Bitcoin and you look at Ethereum, two very large, very decentralized networks. They're great. Uh, but you look at the idea of securities and tokenizing securities on networks, um, one thing that might be an issue with that when, when it comes to, to regulators and jurisdictions is that you know, if, I have a, if I'm trading what I've identified as a security on the Ethereum network and uh, I then trade with someone else, I'm moving, even if it's a registered and, and jurisdictionally compliant user to another jurisdictionally compliant user, say that that block is confirmed by uh, a black producer in uh, in North Korea or Venezuela, somewhere where we have trade sanctions against. Um, I think that the SEC will have problems with things like that. Wow! Right. So when you look at some of the larger financial institutions and and the in the countries and the compliance within countries that they uh, have to work with, because you're still going to have to, as the law changes, you're still going to be modified to making sure you're compliant with existing law. I think that the network, like a network like Hashgraph, which is incredibly fast, uh, incredibly permissioned network, the organizations. Uh, some of the large organizations that are in the current financial system will feel more comfortable using that. And permission versus permissionless is pretty much for you to be on Hashgraph, you have to have permission to yeah. build on it. Yeah. And that's a very interesting concept. Yep. Do, do you feel like there's a, some form of centralized authority? Absolutely. 100%. Okay. Yeah. This is the, the, I, I think that there is 
you know, there is decentralization. It's, it is untrusted partners that can exist on this thing, and they can agree to this network uh, content, like the, the, the understanding that the state is not going to be changed. Uh, so there are parts that are great. The whole movement doesn't need to be everything is decentralized. Absolutely. Um, That's Ethereum's it, issue. Yeah. Right? It's so, scalability. Right. And so, so the idea that, you know, these will be transitionary networks. You know, maybe in the future we break down all the walls and there's no borders anywhere and you don't have to have compliance with anything. And we finally come to these. The chances of that happening, I, I, I view as pretty slim. Um, so we're going to have some networks that will do different things. I'm a huge fan. Again, I'm a cypherpunk through and through. I'm a huge fan of uh, breaking systems down and in the idea that uh, the, these decentralized networks will come and that's great. But I do believe that there's a transitionary period of time. Uh, and I think that networks like Hashgraph will do well in some of the technologies that usher that transition. So there will be, a, a, again, I think from an a large enterprise and large financial institution enterprise, a big push towards the Hashgraph network. A buddy of yours is the one starting Satori, right? Satori. And, Satori is a decentralized AI mesh. It is the, one of the scariest and most exciting platforms. Tell us about Satori. I've seen. Um, so this is, it's currently running. Satori is uh, the product uh, from the guys, the founders of Machine Zone. Machine Zone is one of the, um, the uh, most profitable uh, video game companies in history. They've created two games that have done revenue over a billion dollars. Uh, their their latest game, Game of War, uh, is one of the most popular mobile games that exists. They have uh, they did about six point five million in, in revenue, six point five billion in revenue. Billion. Last wow. Year. Yeah. So they created this engine. They created this stateless database communication protocol engine to allow them to create these games. These games are these ever expansive. There's no there's no limit on the number of users. Every person in the world can get on Game of War, right? because of the way that the technology is built. And they they created this out of a communication pro protocol and allowed them to to uh, use atomic broadcast and, and, and message ordering in a, in a new and unique way for massive amounts of users. And then now massive amounts of uh, data, structured and unstructured data. Um, so this engine uh, was first used for uh, a chat room, then through these games, and then they decided that they could uh, create sentiment analysis on Twitter using the entire Twitter firehose. Uh, this, 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 this engine crunches through any information. Right now it can read and interpret up to 500 million messages a second. Wow. Uh, and what they do is they have all these AI bots that then figure out what to do with these messages. Uh, so you throw 500 million messages, and I'm talking about this could be 500 million video camera feeds, mm. live video camera feeds. So and then they'd have AI bots that can de deconstruct object recognition and facial recognition on all of these feeds at the same time. Wow. So they're using it now for smart cities. They launched a program in Auckland, New Zealand, and they have all the cabs, the buses, the trains, the police cars, the... Uh, the street lights, the street cameras, um, all focused at Satori, and Satori allows the community to have a real-time understanding of everything that's going on, and then they were able to build applications on top of that, like ride-sharing. So you have much better engines for traffic control and understanding where people should be moving. So this is a, a great system. Ideally, the, the people that are they're working on that, I, that, I, that I know and trust, Gabe Lydon, 
the, the, there will be building in, uh, for me what's important are things like self-sovereign identity. Making sure that when we do have systems like this, because we will be going towards systems that will immediately be able to identify you. you know, right now with our phones, with the data collection that's occurring, there's so much data being built up on us individually. We don't have any control of that. We need to own our data. We need to be the ones that are asked whether or not our data is accessed by anyone for any reason. Whether, whether it's medical records or whether or not you're trying to figure out whether or not you want to sell me something. Uh, based on my, my that's work, a thought where I've been so self-sovereign identity wow. has to um, we have to be pushing for this and especially when it's going to come to these systems that are going to have us uh, videoed at all times so you know the idea that no one should be able to track us currently you they're experimenting with platforms that are centralized that we will never have any idea who's looking at us uh, like Jeff Bezos, Amazon has, has created a platform in Florida with a police department that does uh, that does facial recognition, and we don't know who's accessing it on a, on a more on a larger, broad scale platform. What I hope for out of Satori is that we're, we're going to be on. Uh, we're going to have a platform that we have self-sovereign identity to be able to use to be able to identify to where if they are using this for radical. Um, you know this frictionless with life concept that Gabe talks about that we can still be the owners of our identity if anyone wants to access who we are say it's an illegal reason say there say there is a, a that the, there's a suspect that's believed to have committed a crime and they need to find out who that is we need to make sure that we have the proper things in place to where um, we know that there's a warrant that's been issued we know what judge has signed for this and we know that these things have been written into an immutable chain so people can't abuse them Wow, in terms of privacy, what's your thought on privacy? Because it feels like this is just a complete breach of privacy. How do you think we can allow a system like Satori to be actually usable, but also allow individuals like you and I to feel safe? Yeah, so I mean, I wouldn't say that you know, you're not running, and it's also not the only use uh, for Satori. Uh, it's gonna be used as a, as a massive worldwide uh, decentralized order book, um, which is the first use case for it that'll go public. Um, but the, from, from a privacy standpoint, we exist right now largely in a world without privacy, without ownership. I mean, again, this goes back to the self-sovereign identity and owning your data side of things. You know, as we get more towards these, uh, these, these networks that we agree to be on, uh, it, it, the use of their technology will matter in what parts of the world that you're in. If you live in a part of the world that does not want to give you access or doesn't care, people will build systems that lock you out and you have no uh, ownership of the data that will underlie your identification. Uh, but if we are, if we are, are, are pushing towards a, this world, we need to educate people about self-sovereign identity and being able to own any data that's attached to your identity on any network. And so that's for me the, the privacy aspect of it. And, and prior to these Byzantine fault tolerant distributed ledgers, um, we really had no way to, to, to certify guarantee to understand that this is, uh, that, that we could have ownership of this now uh, and that these public networks could be done so in a way uh, that it wasn't trusting an intermediary. So this is, this is something that, that is probably one of the largest advancements because of this technology, that we now will have the ability to own this and own it outright 
as, as, as individuals. Well, that's huge. It is. And with projects with Satori, you know, 500 million transactions per second. I think Visa does 7,000 uh, transactions per second Up now. to 50,000, yeah. Up to 50,000, yeah. but 500 million. I mean, to think about the use case yeah. of that. Well, it's not going to be a, it's not going to be a, uh, a protocol, right? So it's actually going to write, when it writes to a distributed ledger, it, they're attempting a stateless consensus model, uh, but they will, they will write to a, uh, a ledger um, off of their system. That's where Hashgraph comes in. So Hashgraph should be able to handle up to about a half a million to a million transactions per second. Uh, and so they will uh, publish to that uh, in, the, in the consensus. Which as is it still goes, impressive. Which is, it's awesome. Yeah, it's gonna, be, it's gonna be super rad. And that's why it's almost fine for it to be centralized. Because at the end of the day, it's something that needs to have some sort of oversee, and, and it's, a, it's a new concept, a new technology, and it's a transition period. And it's just like any other transition period where it has to start centralized before going decentralized, in my opinion. Um, so, other than that, let's I mean, let's talk about some basic questions. Maybe people might want to know what's on your mind in regards to you know projects that you might be bullish on okay. that are currently uh, you know on Coin Market Cap, for example. Are there any projects that might I mean, I, I'll, 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 I will say, you know, I'm always bullish on Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin is, uh, is, is the only true currency. And um, I think that EOS, as we mentioned before, I think EOS is, is a fantastic platform. I try, I try not to get too involved in, um, on the side of uh, speculation. Uh, I just know the systems that I want to use myself. Right, so I get super excited about where EOS is going to be during the next couple of months because of all the projects that I see that are building on top of EOS, meaning that I will want to have more EOS so I can use them. Uh, and so that's what I get super excited about. Um, you know, other than that, uh, you know, I, I, there's not really too many existing products that I, that projects that I'm in love with. And I like that answer because in 2000 with the dot-com boom, you know, there were thousands of companies just arising out of nowhere. And you look now at the companies that have survived and there's only a handful, I can probably count it with one hand, how many companies are still around, you know, Facebook, Google, and these large companies that did make it through. And I think that's a confident answer to say, hey, EOS is a project I'm excited about. But other than that, I don't see much value elsewhere in terms of the long term. And you know, I think it's interesting to ask an individual like you because you've seen so many different transition periods. You know, since the '90s, since the 2000s. I mean, you've been through this. You know what projects. You know, I think you have a sense of intuition that most people don't have, and I think that's interesting. Uh, and, and you know, to kind of go into um, you know more of the investment side of things uh, and your personal you know philosophies, um, where do you see yourself in the next five to ten years focusing on in regards to all of your funds, the projects that you're advising, uh, and the team that you're currently managing? Yeah. I mean, where do you see your personal yeah. uh, focus in the next five to ten years? So I've kind of created this CTO as a service role that I've been able to build a team around and then go into some of these. Uh, projects. I mean, we're exposed now to some of the most interesting projects in the world. Uh, DNA helps a lot with the uh, the broker dealer on some of the larger raises. Uh, the smaller side of things, uh, Ikigai helps try to identify and uh, cultivate these uh, these, these uh, technologies into where then they can get into a larger public guy. So I have a very technical team that I go and I roll in with and. 
um, then I start working on the technology, working on the vision, uh, and I love doing that. So there are a number of different projects uh, along that line that I'm uh, more excited about. I mean, there's there, there's no math that's safe. Everything that we've known is is, is being attacked right now, uh, and, and as it should. You know, we're, we're, we've been only on a collective network as humans for the last 30 years, and more and more people are adding to this network, which means we get more and more information. So the scientific communities, the, uh, the, the, the theoretic, theoretical math computations and labs are just only increasing. And now you know, you'll see a bunch of these breakthroughs for some pretty major technologies, whether they be search and sort algorithms that are going to change the speed at which we can actually analyze. We're just going to have so much in, 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 in it's come to so many new understandings 100%. in the next decade. So I'm mean, just, just super excited for it, man. Just, just, just happy to be working with some of the smartest people, I think, in the, in the planet, uh, trying to make sure that they're ethically aligned, trying to make sure that they're doing things uh, for the betterment of mankind and not just for greed. Um, so just happy to be uh, steering the ship and, and a steward of technology and, uh, and one of the most exciting times. So I get excited about the, the, the young crews that go through and are getting excited about these things and you're right i mean i've lived through a lot of this this change but with with age comes wisdom and making sure that the people that are building these things whether they uh whether they're veterans or or, or younger are just doing them um well understanding the past mistakes that we've had and with the hopefully with the idealism that i think resonates in the millennials and I, with the with the intentions, I mean, I'm super excited about the millennial generation. I mean, I think your generation is uh, is uh, sick of all the bullshit, and they, they got dealt such a shit hand, but they smiled through it. And now that they're building their own systems and their own, th own things, they're just doing them with honor and with intention. And that's just something I'm super proud of. You know, knowing that these kids were all knowing that everyone was on these networks and talking and communicating, and I believe that they've. Uh, that your generation has really kind of honed into to, to understanding that humanity and, and compassion and empathy are things of experience and travel are things that are so much more important than um, hoarding and uh, you know greed. Uh, so you know, I, de I have a lot of hope for that, and, and watching it all grow in has just been super exciting. And I think people look at our you know generation, and some of them will call us lazy, some of them will call us unambitious, but. You know, it's interesting you mention the millennials because it's almost as if it's not the fact that we're lazy, but we just we're just tired of doing these systematic things that have never really allowed us to progress. Yeah. And and we're only trying to focus on the things that we truly love and the things that we feel passionate about, the yeah. things that we feel can just allow time to just go by. Yeah. And I think pursuing that and then also attaching data to it. And then knowing that that data can be monetized and knowing that we can now have this, you know, world of less intermediaries, it's allowing us to really become more of this holistic, not country, but earth. Organism. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, everyone on this planet together is this one being. And, you know, I think that it, you're right. I mean, going through the, the periods of life that we've, we've existed as, as debt slaves or as slaves. I mean, it's just, it is, uh, it's great to see that there is an entire generation that's standing up saying, and saying no thank you to that option and, and creating different ways to have happiness and understand that you know you can be there's many people that go out and they get their six-figure job they get their seven-figure job and they're just completely unhappy 
They work the whole time. They're, they're, they, it's not much of a life if you're waking up at six, doing something you despise for you know, 12 to 16 hours and rinse, repeat, and do it over again for 355 days of the year. That doesn't sound like a life I want to live. I'd much rather, in whatever happiness that is, find a community that's going to allow me to do th the things that I, that I flourish at, that I love doing, and that are super impactful. You know, I, I, I completely disagree with the, the thought that millennials are lazy. Uh, millennials do more uh, than, the, the, than, than the, the previous generation. I, I think that they're, they're really driven to be creative. And I think this creative skills, especially as we get into this period where we're going to have robotics and AI, uh, that for a long time we're going to handle these vertical, um, uh, vertical uh, jobs, uh, it's going to remove the need for those without the creativity. Um, so we have to move into this situation where you know, I think that creativity and design, I think, are two of the most important aspects of how we separate ourselves from the robots before we integrate ourselves with the robots. I love it. And, you know, I think the coolest thing about all of this, Timothy, is the fact that you're really passionate about this. And, you know, I really want to just take this moment and say thank you for all of the work that you're doing in this industry, you know, working with Liberty Block. So. If you guys don't know Liberty Block, that's his, you know, that's his baby. So make sure that you uh, check that out and vote Liberty Block, LibertyBlock.io. LibertyBlock.io. So make sure you guys check that out and also Ikigai DNA Fund. I mean, these are some awesome projects. Where could people find you? Where could people? Um, maybe uh, even contribute. I mean, it, sure. Any sort of you know, uh, Ikigai.fund is, is is our website. Um, I'm. Uh, and how do you spell Ikigai? I K I G A I. Okay. Dot fun. I don't do as much. I really don't tweet. My partner Travis Kling tweets. I do not. <laughs> um, I'll be doing more uh, more YouTube stuff for uh, for for Liberty Block. I'll be talking a little bit more about that. I do a lot of the conference circuit. Uh, I'll be in South Korea uh, at the end of next week. I'll be in Macau. I'll be in Hong Kong. Then I'll be in uh, Thailand and Bangkok at the Alpha Exchange Conference. Uh, then uh, I'll be uh, in Las Vegas, Mandalay Bay, August, I think it's 15th, 16th, the Chain Exchange, uh, uh, the, the conference there. Then I'll be in Chicago. There's a Voice of Disruption conference in Chicago. And then I'll be going back home to Burning Man. So if you guys are <laughs> around, around the bird, come check out Camp Epic, uh, and we'll be doing it up. That's amazing. Online and about, man. Thank you for having me. Uh, if anyone has any questions, uh, just 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 reach out. Awesome. Thank you, Timothy. Yeah, brother.